Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Connie Lin. She's a manager, founder, and neuroscientist. She works as a development manager. What does that mean? I have no clue. So I'll certainly ask her about that. She founded the nonprofit Higher PhD. What is that? I'll certainly ask her about that as well. And then she studied neuroscience all the way to the doctoral level. What made her decide to do that? Well, that's another question that's on the, that's on the menu. So <laughs> let's, let's just jump right into it. Welcome to the Teach the Geek interviews, Dr. Lin. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So as I mentioned in the intro, you studied neuroscience. What was the motivation to study it? Oh, it's actually one of my stories in terms of persistence. Uh, at the end of my bachelor's degree, um, I, I realized I didn't want to be a physician anymore. So I wanted to go into research and my grade wasn't stellar at the time. It was fairly B plus average and that is the minimum for grad school. So I, I wrote personalized emails to 100 different professors just hoping to get into their lab, but that's the first step. Three replied, and two didn't respond to me back after I sent them my transcript because it's not good enough, and one responded, and that person is in neuroscience. <laughs> yeah, oh. but of course, like uh, at the time, like you you study it, and you know you know you'll, you know you like like research, then then doesn't matter which topic it is. Oh man, so you're saying that. You went to neuroscience because the one person who responded after seeing your transcript just happened to be in neuroscience? Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it's just, you know, like we were talking about, um, I can talk more about that when, I, when we talk about higher PhD is your career trajectory doesn't need to be a linear line. It's just opportunity arise and then make you who you are today. Got it. Okay, so it sounds like okay, you went into your PhD because eventually you decided not to pursue the MD and then you you thought that you didn't have well you, you because of your grades it was one one professor that gave you a shot and then you ended up doing the phd once you were done your phd at least uh, well well one question I, I typically have for people that pursue phds is once they do at least for the ones that i know that do them at least when they first start the goal is to stay in academia was that your goal or was it to, to leave academia Oh, absolutely. It was. I started with a master's. So I, I finished my master's and then did my PhD at the same lab. Um, at the time, I, I when I entered, my dream was to win a Nobel Prize. And every single PhD will smile when I tell them that because a lot of them thought the same thing. And then you realize later it's not how you think it will be. Yeah, yeah. I mean... And not only that, but then, you know, when, even when it comes to winning a Nobel Prize, you really don't have any say in whether you do it. It's, it's something that I think, I don't know, do you even apply to win a Nobel Prize? It's just, you get picked, right? No, you, you get picked. And this almost sounds like nobody really know how the process is like. And well, but people don't really argue why those, those people were picked because it's so obvious why they should have won. 
um, it, it's a lot of um, luck and coincidence of where being in the right place at the right time, right? A lot of time it's like also hard work. You cannot go without hard work. Yeah. yeah, you know those type of goals. I never, I never liked. So maybe because, as you said, the, there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot that's just outside of your control. You could do the best you can in in yeah. the work that you do, and other people might th find it useful. But if you're not picked, then you don't get a Nobel Prize, and there goes your goal. Yeah, and then when when we were younger, how, how would I know? I I didn't even know how they were picked. I'm like, oh, Nobel Prize. That's gonna be my north star. I I'm gonna do do the best I can with the hardest I can. So. One day I'll win a Nobel Prize, and then later, two years later into a master's, you realize, uh, okay, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then you get you you get your PhD. What was next for you? Oh well, I I already kind of that I tell that story at the end of the master's was was I realized that that reality, and I realized that my master's thesis when I was writing it. Um, I wasn't making a dent in the universe as I thought I would wanted to, and and I stuff venture out and I started. I already promised my prof to go into PhD, so there's no turning back, and I do want a doctor in front of my name. Um, so I started venturing out, volunteering, getting to student politics, and and many other things, and trying to fight myself throughout the PhD career. At the time, I I kind of knew I need to find a second option. Um, another thing I realized in grad school during my master's is there's, you think you're smart? No, there are tons of people who are smarter than you and they work hard too. Yeah, so I'm like, hey, I need a second option. Wow. You know, yeah. I, you, you're certainly not the first person that went through a PhD program that eventually came to that realization. And I think the main issue is that even though there are people that are graduating with these degrees who want to stay in academia, there's just not enough positions to support all those people mm -hmm. who want to stay. And so they have to find something else to do. So I'm glad that someone like yourself, you eventually came to that realization, at least it sounds like before your PhD was over, as opposed to being disgruntled when you finally get this PhD and you realize I there's, there's no job here. Do, am, I gonna have to go, am I gonna have to go take a, a postdoc for however long and with the hopes of eventually getting a tenure track position? Because it seems like that's the, the path that many people take. Yeah, and then that's the birth of a uh, higher PhD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you, you really nail down why higher P PhD existed and then was created. It's to help those people who, who maybe didn't, I, didn't know what to do, even though they had the realization. They realized, oh, that's what's happening, but what do I do then? Because in academia, nobody's teaching you how to get out of academia. All they're teaching you is how to stay. Right. Well, in, in I guess in fairness, you're asking people who have been lifetime academics how to leave academia. Well, how 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 would they know? They didn't do it. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I know that your professor. Maybe they they have all the heart. Like my professor is awesome. She has all the heart to help. She allow every one of us in in her lab to to try something new. Not every professor is like that. A lot of the professors, they rather you stay in the lab and then do, do what they want you to do. But my professor let me go out and try. So they try their best to help you, but they can't really advise because they didn't know either. So you you, know, you mentioned higher PhD. Exactly. What is higher PhD? Is it a, it's a platform? Is it a company? What is it? 
It uh, it's very interesting. Her PhD is the fourth nonprofit that I that I started. Um, so at, at first I was like, okay, I, I'm sick and tired of nonprofit. I wanna I I want the flexibility of for profit company that I can still still uh, help people. So there's a kind of a thing called called social enterprise. It's for profit. However, the the revenue, the profit is is contributed back to the society. Um, I started out as that and then realized that, oh, people want to volunteer for me, but for, for public company, they cannot take volunteers legally, not in Canada at least. So then I went and then created another um, entity, Higher PhD Career Society, that is a nonprofit and then we can take volunteers. So <clears throat> the aim really is twofold. One is to help the PhDs or masters, we say advanced degree holders to to navigate outside of academia, like their, their career path outside. And another another uh, another aim is to help companies or people in general understand why they should hire PhD. I think that's that's the more important path that we, we want to go to because PhDs, they, they know they need to find a job, but the employer might not know they could hire them. Hmm. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Just the the idea that I mean, thinking about even when I used to work as an engineer, I don't recall any of the other engineers having PhDs. Maybe masters was the mm -hmm. masters was perhaps the highest, but I'm not sure that the mm -hmm. company was opposed to hiring PhDs. It's just oftentimes this is actually something that I discussed with a, with a past guest as well. Is that when you hire mm -hmm. PhDs, there for years they worked on something that was very specific, and they went into the mm -hmm. weeds of what that what that thing was. But once you work at an in, once you start working in industry, you're gonna have to well work on whatever the company asks you to. And not only that, there's a time limit most likely on what you're gonna be working. There's time constraints that, that are that are involved with what you're working on too. We want to launch this product by this date, you know, at this trade show or something mm -hmm. like that. So there's the, the perhaps the the issue that they may have with hiring a PhD is that they're not used to that sort of those sort of timelines, and they're just not used to. Mm -hmm having to work on something not as specifically as the, perhaps they were used to in their PhD studies. Yeah, that's a very common misconception that I heard. I don't know if that person have uh, his PhD or not. not. I think the main two things, two misconceptions that I heard is one that you just mentioned that, oh, they, they only know that specific thing. They cannot adapt to industry. Cannot or cannot, cannot adapt to industry. That's another story. Second thing is, they're too expensive. Oh, I had to pay them like a lot more, but I can hire somebody for less. No, you can actually just offer them exactly the same salary. They'll happily say yes, because they will get paid a lot less in, in academia. They <laughs> <laughs> I always tell, tell employer, like, try it. You offer them for, uh, say, 70K, and then they will be like, really? <laughs> I tell that to every single PhD. They they all laugh because it's the truth. <laughs> I remember my first offer from my policy job, and and the recruiter uh, called me back and said, "We we we already offer you the highest we can we can offer you. I know we, you have a PhD, but this is the best we can do." I'm like, "Okay, how much? Seventy? I'm like." Really? In my head, I was like jumping around. <laughs> and the, in their head, it's like, oh, it's, I, can you please accept it? I know it's too little. I'm like, no, it's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I hope employers hear this because this is the most important barrier in their head, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, people are impressed when they see that PhD after your name. They just, yeah, I think you're right. They just assume we can't afford this person, but if they knew how much postdocs got paid, they maybe they understand. <laughs> They'll be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you save money, you hire two people's workload. Actually, this is usually what happens. <laughs> you know, yeah, Ben for the buck. <laughs> I also mentioned in the intro that you're a development manager. So, as a development manager, mm. what does that entail? It's actually just a fancy term that electronic arts have for project managers. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I manage I manage game development projects. I have uh, I have teams that I, I, I need to support. Yeah, we, we say support because we're servant leaders. We're not telling people what to do. They're, right. they're very smart engineers. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm just trying yeah. to assist them. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, with project managers, they have all the responsibility and none of the authority. At least that's what I found. And <laughs> what what brought, what made you decide to get into project management? Oh, it's it's actually realization through my my uh, graduate school is graduate school has a lot of projects. That's what what we do. I, I have seven projects and and then manage a twenty five people team doing my PhD, and that made me realize that my passion is actually seeing people grow. My students they. They get excited and they train them enough though, so they can train other people and they have other people under them too. That is like where, where my joy comes from. And that's why it, it becomes, you can see my career path of, of creating higher PhD too. Is I, that's why it makes me happy to see people grow. Um, and doing PhD, I, I was mentioning, I was exploring my career. So I tried different things. I tried government, I tried, I tried um, nonprofit. Also, I tried industry, and then through a um, a scholarship, um, government created to work in a gaming company. And I'm a gamer, in case you can't tell. <laughs> um, so when I was working in a gaming company, I really liked the the um, the culture. It's relaxed. It's fun. Um, I worked there for four years, and after that, after my PhD, I go into actual medical jobs. But uh, after a few years, I wanted to return. And yeah. I'm not an engineer like you, so I can't do program like I can't do programming, but not in development programming. So project manager was the way to go. You know, Dr. Lee, when you were speaking, it made me think about just people graduating with PhDs with in certain fields and then working in something that has nothing to do with what their PhD is in. And I think it's another issue that maybe a lot of PhDs struggle with when they finish their when they finish their degrees. It's they spent all this time getting this degree in this particular field and then mm -hmm. they may think that it was all a waste mm -hmm. because they ended up working in something that has nothing to do with their nothing to do with that field. What would you say to people who, who feel that way? Well, if I'll, I'll say two things. I, I, I see that a lot do, in, in higher PhD, right? I said, does that really matter to you? <laughs> what makes you happy? It, it matters most to you, right? So for me, I see everything I do at my work. I learn from my PhD time. And and how is that a waste, right? I, I learned how to manage people, finance, and, and project through PhD. And also I see... The stuff that I learned, I, I analyzed in PhD times, I see, I use it while I'm doing project management. So there's nothing waste there. Then people are always fascinated with what I what I studied before. And the main thing that PhD and, and post-secondary in general, what they taught, taught you is how to think. 
And PhD in another level is they taught you how to invent from knowing zero about the topic to be able to be an inventor within months. That's what PhD enables you to do. And that will not be lost in any kind of industry. Yeah. You know, what, what, uh, I, before we even started recording, I, I mean, I, I told you the, the, the genesis of why I even started this channel was because I wanted to speak to people that have technical backgrounds about their public speaking journeys and that a lot of us with these type of backgrounds aren't known as being the, the best or more most effective at, at presenting in front of people or just public speaking in general. So when it comes to just your own your own story, when did you realize that getting better or just you know, being proficient at giving presentations or, or public speaking, it would be a benefit to you? Well, let's say that's a necessity in grad school. And I'm an immigrant, so I came here when I was 16, so my English would never be perfect according to psychology and neuroscience. Um, so it was tough. Um, at the first, when I had to present doing my master's on my technical stuff, my professor will always tell you that story. It's like she was so embarrassed. She didn't want to admit I'm her student. That was that bad at the beginning. And then you look at me now. I'm not prepared. There's no script here. I can just talk. How did I come from there to here? It was practice. If you look at my CV, it's over 100 public presentations. And that on top of that, every presentation I need to prepare. And plus that, I doing, <clears throat> I would talk about the student government that um, activity that I, I entered, and that involved a lot of public speaking. And it's not anything script like the technical presentation where you can prepare, you know your stuff. Student government and politics presentation, they're a hoc. You you have to be right away. Somebody's talking about something new, three, like 15 seconds later, you have to respond with the cohesive responses. So that was really good practice after like 80 years of that. Now I can talk like this. Before, it was an embarrassment. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't envy people like you who you move to a different country with a different language and have to speak it, in this new language to other people so that you can be understood. It's it's hard enough for people whose first language is, well, who have a one language and are only speaking in that language to people who understand that language. It's, it's difficult enough for them to, to do it, but to have that ad, added burden of it being your second mm -hmm. language or sometimes even third or fourth, or, however many languages you speak, just speaking in a language that's not native to your own, that, that must be difficult. But here you are. And I certainly understand what you're saying now. So whatever you're doing <laughs> is working out. <laughs> yeah, lots of practice. Like, yeah, I, we, we can talk about a lot of uh, public speaking tricks, too, that, that I developed through the years. Because um, during student government, I need to speak to thousands of people in the whole whole concert hall and, and in front of ambassadors, like I represented Canada as graduate student to China government, it, we traveled to China and then speaking in front of all the government officials. Um, <clears throat> those was after all the practice that I had. Otherwise, I will be freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Process. <clears throat> okay, so I, I think people listen to probably the same tip over and over again. I think, okay, maybe I need to divide it into two different categories. Let me write that down. So for technical technical presentations, 
And first is just public speaking in general. Technical presentations, you know your outlines, right? You probably already develop a, a deck that you use and use over again. And follow the outline, dump, dump your brainstorm and dump your ideas in and then develop your slide that way. One slide, one idea. I didn't. I personally don't like a lot of words on the slides, but technical presentation is really hard not to. I will, I will use mostly graphs to remind me what I'm supposed to talk about. But at the beginning, I will say, don't worry about it. Um, right. If you just too nervous, sometimes you get the brain freeze when at the beginning you're not used to it. I still get brain freeze, right? Um, having the words there will pick you up and you can read through it. It's okay. The audience are okay with that. People are used to that. But once you get better and better, you can take the words less and less out of the slides. And for the public speaking in terms of like, for example, like this, or some um, more like a motivation talk, it's not technical. I will use most mostly graphic just to remind people, remind me what I'm supposed to say, but not exactly the script. And, and again, the same process, it's like writing an essay, right? You, you need the outline and you need to remind people again and get in, in, in the outline. Don't assume people remember what you said. Like you watch this YouTube after, after like five minutes later, people already lost their attention. And then they'll be like, what were you saying? Remind people of the outline or what you're going to talk about. After each point, you repeat the point, repeat the conclusion. At the end, you repeat all of the key points of the takeaway. That's very important. Um, if you want people to take some key key take takeaway messages, that you need to conclude that at the end. Yeah, I'm a big fan of having the what you just you just deciding even when you were preparing your presentation what those takeaways are going to be. And I'm actually a fan of, of once you do that, working backwards as to, and, and everything being able to funnel into what those takeaways are. And so anything that you present in the presentation is, mm -hmm. is not superfluous to the presentation. It, nothing, there, there's no fluff involved. Everything that you talk about is leading to what those takeaways are supposed to be. And I certainly take away, I certainly accept your point on using more graphics than text because I can remember working as an engineer and going to a, a technical conferences and sitting through those talks and man, if if I went to, if I if I went to them without any coffee, it's uh it's, it's almost it's almost invariably ten years of that. I'm gonna fall asleep. Coffee, Red Bull, something. something. <laughs> I can't I can't go there just normal. It's regular because they get people that get up there and they read their slides and they get out of there as quickly as possible and it's just a, a sea of people doing the exact same thing. And I'm, I'm yeah. thinking to myself, it's a good thing I didn't pay to come to this conference. <laughs> and who do you remember who is the one who didn't do that indeed right? that's, that's exactly who you remember like, how, how come i don't grab it what happened to the text indeed. Ooh, i should pay attention now <laughs> this you're, you're is different you know you know it's funny you mentioned that dr lin i once gave a webinar and i had and they asked and the the, the organizers asked me to send them the slides beforehand and i mm -hmm. did and it very few very little text on those slides and they were actually yeah. surprised but what i sent them is like are you sure this is the presentation i was like yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm not revealing the secrets right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know what it does is when you have less text on the slides 
it forces people to either listen or ignore you. Mm. And then it also, it removes that crutch for the, of the presenter of just reading the slides. Because when you mm -hmm. read, it's very difficult to engage people because you're looking at the, you're looking at the slides or you're looking at the screen, you're reading the text. You're not looking at the people. And it's really mm -hmm. difficult to engage people when you're not looking at them. So, mm -hmm. I, so I, I certainly, I, I take your points. You know, when it comes to giving presentations, do you ever get nervous? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? I love that question. I was hoping you asked that question. <laughs> so yeah, public speaking, the number one fear, right? Of human fears. Um, the, it, after a while, you don't, but you, the adrenaline rush, sometimes your body cannot, cannot control it. it. It does come in still after, like, I'm so seasoned. You can call me right now to an audience of 1,000. I will still be able to speak on whatever topic you want me to speak. That's, that's where I am now. I still get nervous. I still get adrenaline kick. And when once I kick in, what happens is your your blood is leaving your brain really to your hindbrain to prepare you for fight or flight. So you got nothing here now. So how do you come back that way? You need to be intelligent and speaking on things that you prepare, but you can't remember. You get a brain fog. My trick is wiggle my toes. It's the worst thing happens if you're well prepared that probably won't affect you because you're still probably able to speak something but the worst thing is when you're shaking like this on the stage that is very embarrassing so this is I wiggle my toes when that happens and I can feel the shake before I go on the stage I wiggle my toes that kind of redirect your attention to to your toes instead instead of whatever your your unconscious mind is perceiving of the fear and Often that, that calms my shaking down. Once that shaking is down, that's an indication where the, the hormone is not, not affecting you as much anymore. And, and that's how I combat it in the emergency situation. Um, yeah, personally, I find that if I just like people say, deep breath, deep breath. But if I do, personally, if I do that, that just reminds me of the fear and I, I get that kick in, actually. Like it, it does a reverse to me. Huh. Yeah, so I use a toe. Interesting. I, yeah, yeah. That's the first time I've ever heard heard that that piece of advice. If you're nervous, wiggle your toes. How, how long are you wiggling your toes for? Well, until the, the shaking goes away. So it's really <laughs> re redirecting your, it's tricking your nervous, your, your brain, right? Tricking your brain to pay attention to something else. It's like medita meditation in a different sense. So is this yeah. wiggling, wiggling, this toe wiggling, is this something you're doing before you, you start your presentation or is this something you're doing even during the presentation? Uh, it's when I feel the adrenaline comes in. Like I think, um, I, I just described how that feels like physiologically. So you, when you recognize that, do that to try to re redirect it, even on the stage. Because okay. sometimes I will be like holding a water or holding, sometimes I'm giving more of a ceremonial speech so I need that piece of paper saying something exactly if I'm holding the paper like this that's not cool it, it, especially if there are camera on me right yeah, yeah. And, and not only that but no one can tell if you're wiggling your toes so that's, that's exactly pretty, pretty good <laughs> exactly like you, you start doing deep breathing while you're on the stage <laughs> it's like, like yeah, weirdo. <laughs> okay you're nervous <laughs> the thing is you don't want people to see you're nervous because you can see them their faces seeing you nervous and this vicious cycle make you even more nervous right yeah often that happens before the stage i recognize that before before i go on the stage i start with going my my toes make make sure that 
it doesn't happen on stage. But if during the stage that happens, I usually don't remember wriggling my toes. Good luck if you do. But uh, yeah. Interesting. Pay attention so, to something else. If you were to offer one tip to anyone who's watching or listening to our conversation on getting better at giving presentations or public speaking in general, what would it be? Practice. <laughs> I'm sure people have heard that a million times. Um, in terms of, um, I think the best person, I usually too lazy to prepare, prepare for my presentation. Uh, I, I don't want you to learn that from me. Um, because I was talking on something that I know very well. But the one that really was perfect, and it was a huge audience, it's a big conference hall. Um, it was because I practiced probably 100 times. And I go on the adrenaline dick kicking then because there was a lot of medical doctors down the stage. And it was just a very intimidating uh, audience. But I my brain was completely blank because of the adrenaline was kicking in but I breathed through it because my hindbrain could just speak on what I practice it has become like a I know how to ride a bicycle I don't need to remember consciously yeah practice is, is the most important thing indeed practice makes progress well this has been a great conversation Dr. Lin thank you for being a guest how can people get in touch with you oh you can find me on LinkedIn and uh, so C-O-N-N-Y-L-I-N. Um, and also you can contact me through email, C-O-N-N-Y-L-I-N at doctor.com. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. And you can find more find out more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Dr. Lin. Thank you. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.